So um, we'd originally intended on preaching uh, the end of Mark chapter 7 this morning, but due to some unforeseen circumstances, uh, we shifted yesterday evening, and I'm going to be preaching uh, from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Um, and I just want to say, God is so good. Uh, even this morning, as I've talked to a handful of people, I've just realized the providence of God in even uh, this passage being taught this morning instead of, of Mark 7. Uh, I really genuinely believe uh, we need to hear this, this word from John 2 this morning, and uh, myself included. Um, so, if you got your Bibles, open up there to John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Sorry, I got in trouble last week for not speaking into the microphone for the people outside, so shifted over here. All right. So, if you have your pew Bibles, it's on page 887. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and uh, the title of this sermon is Jesus is Better. So I remember um, when Ruby was about three years old. She's um, our youngest daughter, and uh, she had these little dolls. I don't know if you, you parents know about these, but they're these little dolls called water babies. And at one point, Shannon was taking them and throwing the old ones in the trash can, uh, then replacing them with newer ones, which didn't have mold growing on the inside of them. Kind of nasty. Um, it's always funny to me as a parent. Uh, we know why the old needs to go away and the new be put in its place. Yet, this doesn't always make sense to our kids. Uh, and this isn't completely unlike what we see Jesus doing in John chapter 2 through 4, and specifically in our passage today. Uh, the old out and the new in. Uh, one commentator says that these three chapters of John pre present the replacement of the old purifications by the wine of the kingdom of God, the old temple by the new in the risen Lord, and an exposition of new birth for new creation, a contrast between the water of Jacob's well and the living water from Christ and the worship of Jerusalem and Gerizim with worship in spirit and truth. So a replacement of the old with the new. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's exactly what John and Jesus want us to see happening in this text today. Jesus is replacing the old with the new, and it's so much better. So let's dive into the text. This is the word of the Lord, John 2, 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, 
There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, the book of John as a whole begins with what's known as the prologue that we read earlier, or John telling us exactly who Jesus is from the beginning. He's the Word, and the Word was God. He's the Word made flesh, God incarnate. John the Baptist points to Jesus, the Lamb of God. And the first disciples begin following Jesus in the first chapter of John. Then today, our text begins with what's known as Jesus' public ministry in a section of John known as the Book of Signs, which goes from chapter 2 through the end of chapter 12. And what's important for us to see is in these chapters, over and over and over again, Uh, What we see is Jesus revealing his glory. And then the last several chapters of John, chapters 30 through 20, are known as the book of glory. It's a book of signs and then book of glory. In the book of glory, Jesus isn't revealing his glory. There, he's receiving glory. But before we jump in, I want to start by just looking at the purpose statement of the book of John as a whole. And seeing how this section of John 2 actually accomplishes that purpose statement or that vision. Uh, I love this. John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So keep that in mind as we try to understand why John would include this moment in the life of Jesus. And how this moment in the life of Jesus would lead us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the the living God. And I want to approach this text this morning by making four big statements about Jesus and then show you where these big statements are in the text. So four big statements. Jesus is better, number one, Jesus is better than riding on coattails. Number two, Jesus brings the better wine to the party. Number three, Jesus is better than empty religious ritual. And then four, Jesus is a better bridegroom. All right, now, what do these mean? And where are they in the text? Number one, Jesus is better than riding on coattails. The first part of this story in John chapter 2 can be 
extremely confusing at first glance. Mary, the the mother of Jesus, is at this wedding and the wine runs out. She makes a seemingly innocent remark to her son, Jesus, and he responds somewhat strangely, doesn't he? Look at this, verses 3 and 4. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What in the world is going on here? Well, understand that Jesus, especially in the book of John, is often working on two different levels. A physical level and a spiritual level. Here is no different. And per usual, most initially fail to see the spiritual level. In steps Mary. For Mary, sometimes it's easy to forget. I know I do. It's easy for us to forget that she was actually Jesus' mother. She's not just part of our Christmas plays. She birthed Jesus, nursed him, changed his diapers, watched him grow up as a teenager, watched him live life. And he's probably around 30-ish at this point in life, and there's a clear shift happening here. Most scholars believe that by this time in Jesus' life, Joseph was already dead. And Jesus most likely had taken care of his mother for quite some time. In other words, he had been the family provider. She had relied upon him. And in some ways, probably started to understand that he was something special. She may have been similar to others who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But she didn't, like others, have the full picture of what that meant looking for him to be a political or a military leader of some sort. You see, she probably knew that according to the prophets, the Messianic age would be a time when the wine would flow. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 12, says this, They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. This is talking about the future Messianic age. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young, flock, young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Jeremiah. How about Hosea? Another prophet. Hosea 14, verse 7. Again, talking about the messianic age to come. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Amos 9.13. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. In that light, what Mary appears to be doing here in the text is pressuring Jesus to come on, make a move. I know where this is headed. Do the trick. Jesus, they have no wine. Wink, wink. 
Now's the time to do it. Jesus responds, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, I'm not sure where you're from, but that certainly doesn't sound very chipper and politically correct to me. Many people here race to make these words proper and polite. But in reality, they're not. Now, just to caveat a little bit, they're not dishonoring in any way. They're certainly not sinful in any way. Remember, Jesus is the spotless lamb who never sinned. So they're not dishonoring or sinful words to his mother, but they are meant to be a mild rebuke. John knew that this response out of Jesus' mouth would be surprising. That's the point. He wants you to ask the question, why would Jesus say that? What does it mean? So, instead of calling her mother, Jesus calls her woman, thus distancing himself from her very intentionally in this moment. Jesus does this two other times in the Gospels quite dramatically. I believe to make the same point that he's making here. In Luke chapter 11, verses 27 and 28, it says, As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Mark chapter 3 Verses 31 through 35. We read this text a while back. And his mother and his brothers came, speaking of Jesus, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother, your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So in all three of these instances, there's a sense which to be a member of Jesus' family is to somehow have an inside track to Jesus as the Messiah. To which Jesus is clearly saying, no. Then he says in our text, what does this have to do with me? One pastor has noted that this language is used five other times in the New Testament. And every other time, it's on the lips of demons. Demons speaking to Jesus. Kind of weird, right? Matthew chapter 8, verse 29. And behold, this is demons speaking, behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? The idea of being conveyed in Matthew 8 is, Hey, Jesus, you're invading our territory. You shouldn't be stepping in here. This isn't your place. Same language, very similar meaning, but on the lips of Jesus here in John 2 to Mary. Woman. It's not right for you to be demanding a sign from me right now. 
But look at what he says next. My hour has not yet come. In one sense, if you're reading John for the first time, you're thinking, what hour? What's he talking about? And that's exactly the question John wants us to be asking. Because he's going to answer it multiple times throughout his book. It's like a murder mystery, which raises questions and then answers them. Kind of like Moses in the book of Genesis. In another sense, if you've read John, you already know exactly what he's talking about. John chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, meaning Jesus, because his hour had not yet come. John 8, verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. John 12, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And then finally, John 12, verses 23 and 24. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So the hour that Jesus is talking about here is the hour of his death. He's talking about the cross. So put all of that together. And Jesus is saying to Mary, I'm functioning on another spiritual level that you don't understand. And it's, it's not time for me to die yet. In addition, out of sheer love, he wants Mary, the disciples, and all of us this morning to understand that there's no inside track to Jesus. Being part of Jesus' family wasn't enough. Being part of Jesus' posse wasn't enough. The only track to heaven wasn't an inside one. Mary had to come to Jesus the same way that everyone must come to Jesus, as the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. You don't ride into heaven on someone else's coattails. Think about this. This is good news. No matter how good or how bad maybe your parents were, that doesn't affect your standing with God. If your parents are human, as most parents are, they're not perfect. In fact, many parents are far from it. But your status before God isn't decided by that. It's decided at the hour of Jesus' death on the cross. When you trust in that as your only hope of salvation, that's how you're saved. So first and foremost, Jesus is better than riding on coattails. Point two, Jesus brings the better wine to the party. Jesus brings the better wine to the party. First of all, Jesus and his now five disciples, they're at a wedding party. And they were welcome there. (laughs) 
Many want to point to this passage and comment on whether or not Jesus approves of modern-day alcohol consumption. To do that would be to miss the point completely, in my opinion. But what are we meant to see here? First of all, this is a celebration. And Jesus is part of it, along with his disciples. Every single thing that Jesus did and every single thing that John recorded has an intentional purpose. It isn't just a coincidence that Jesus did his first miracle that he ever did at a party. There's something that he wants us to see here. Further, wine in the Bible is a symbol of joy. Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15 says, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and the plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. So see this on a spiritual level. John wants us to see that without Jesus, the joy of the world is going to run out. Mary says, They have no wine. And yet, after we learned earlier that Jesus kind of stiff arms his mother, Jesus goes on to do exactly what she was asking for. He brings the joy to the party. And not just a little bit. Look at verses 6 and 7. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Now, I'm not great at math, but I can do this one. 20 or 30 gallons times six jars filled to the brim. That's between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. Let me break this down for you. Each modern-day wine barrel contains about 60 gallons, 25 cases, or 300 bottles of wine. That means that Jesus made about 900 bottles of wine at this wedding. Insane, right? That's that's a lot of wine. And it wasn't two-buck chuck. (laughs) Think of high-dollar Napa Valley wine. The master of the feast applauds the bridegroom for saving the good wine for last. Jesus brought the better wine to the party. So Christian, can this be said of you? When you're invited to people's homes or to city events or to parties, do you bring the joy of Christ? Do you bring the better wine to the party by providing what's lacking? There's so many applications here. Maybe this looks like helping someone clean up their house after the party, providing what's lacking. Think about the last party you went to. There's probably trash everywhere after the party. What if you, as a Christian, went to that party celebrated joyfully 
then provided what was lacking by cleaning up with the joy of Christ as you did it. Bring the better wine to the party. What might this look like in your neighborhoods? We should be known as the people who throw the best parties on the block and celebrate with more true joy than anyone else on the planet. God's character should be displayed by the way that we celebrate with one another. That's why God commanded the Israelites to have so many feast days throughout the year. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Joy is one of the fruit of the Spirit. Romans 14, verse 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Do we bring joy to the celebrations that we're at? Jesus is better than riding on coattails. And Jesus brought the better wine to the party. Third, Jesus is better than empty religious ritual. Again, remember that, that, I know I'm being repetitive here, but remember that Jesus doesn't do anything by mistake. John doesn't record anything by mistake. Look at verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus intentionally, very intentionally, chooses these six stone water jars, which were there for the Jewish rites of purification, not by accident. Understand this. These baths or water jars were designed in the Jewish mind to make one pure. That's what they understood those to be there for. It was a religious ritual. They'd come into the party... They'd wash themselves in the water contained in these jars. And then they saw themselves to be clean. It's what we talked about in Mark a couple weeks ago, remember? When the Pharisees were upset about the disciples not washing their hands before lunchtime. That's what these jars were for. Uh, Arthur Pink, who's an English pastor from the 1800s, he notes here that Judaism still existed as a religious system. There were purifications, but it ministered no comfort to the heart. It had degenerated into a cold, mechanical routine, utterly destitute of joy in God. You see what Jesus is doing. He's taking this thing that lacks no joy. It's just sheer rote ritual. He's replacing it with his joy. Jesus chose these vessels to make a point. These old religious rituals were absolutely bone dry. They're empty. They can't, in fact, make you pure. But guess what can? Check this out. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says this, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light... We have fellowship with one another. And here we go. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses 
us from all sin. Empty ritual can never cleanse us, but the blood of Christ can. The same is true in heaven. But Revelation chapter 7, verse 13 through 17, it says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white. How? In the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So in Revelation, how is one's robe made white? It's washed in the blood of the lamb. This is what Jesus was saying at the Last Supper when he held up the cup of wine and he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Empty ritual can never purify you, but Jesus' blood shed on the cross can. He died the death we all deserve. And purified all who would repent and believe in him. Out with the old, in with the new. That's exactly what Jesus was pointing to when he enacted this parable at the wedding. Even more, remember the sheer amount of wine that Jesus filled these jars with. This wedding party could have never finished all the wine. And that's the point. Jesus produces wine in abundance. Jesus says, He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. John 6.35 Anyone who trusts in Christ will never be empty of true joy. Jesus is better than riding on coattails. Jesus brought the better wine to the party. And Jesus is better than empty religious ritual. Fourth and finally, Jesus is a better bridegroom. Jesus is a better bridegroom. I want you to notice something peculiar about this story that's extremely easy to miss. Jesus produces 180 gallons of great wine. The master of the feast tastes the wine and then immediately goes to the groom, and praises him. Because in the text, you kept the good wine until now. But we know this isn't reality, right? The bridegroom at this party absolutely blew it. He failed to provide what was necessary, which would have been a massive embarrassment in a shame-oriented culture. And yet, he gets credit for what Jesus did. Jesus, the true bridegroom, who never fails, who is all-sufficient, who abundantly provides. Do you see that? 
This, in our text, this insufficient bridegroom gets credit for Christ's righteousness whose wine never runs out. That's the core of grace. Christian, realize that this is great news. Christ is the bridegroom, the truer bridegroom. And the church, us, those who have repented and believed, we are the bride. Like the guy in this story, every single one of us has blown it and ended up with empty vessels. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, more shall, uh, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were, were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Romans 5, 8 through 11. Jesus is a better bridegroom. I want us to finish by looking at the disciples' response to all of this. Verse 11 says this. It says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Jesus proves himself to be better in every possible way. And his disciples believed in him. They began to trust in him. This is what both John the Baptist and John, the author of this book, set out to accomplish. Jesus' glory being revealed and the disciples believing Again, I want to read for us the the purpose statement of this whole book of John. John 20, verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Isn't that crazy to think about? Jesus did so much more than we even know about. But he included these, these specific stories for a purpose. What's that purpose? These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus is better. Do you believe it? I want to leave us this morning with a challenge. I want to encourage you, even today and maybe throughout this week, to think about that statement. Jesus is better. Do I believe it? Are there things in my life that I would look to and say, no, in this instance in my life, I'm saying that this thing is actually better than Jesus. Jesus is better. Do you believe it? I pray that we would. Let's pray.